Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with those good old people at Microsoft Azure. Shout out Howard. Uh, we're coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork Oldgate in London, England. And before we get started, I uh, just wanted to ask you if you've got any questions. Uh, if you've got questions to answer about fintech, finance, or even our favorite cocktails, drop us an email at podcast at 11fs.com and find us on social media because... Well, we want to read out some of your stuff on the show. Get in touch. Uh, I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts, uh, David Breer and Sarah Kachansky. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm very well. I've had a very exciting week. Ooh, um, do tell, do tell. Um, I, I, I published one of my, my latest report has gone out there into the wild. My baby has been released. and um, I hear it has gifts. It, well, so I thought it had gifts. And then uh, Martin, who is our wonderful, wonderful website designer, told me they aren't gifts, they're videos. And I was really, really sad. But it's got moving, beautiful moving animations, which are amazing um, designer Simone made. So, yeah. Shout out to Simone. How are you doing, David? Have you done anything that amazing? Really good. Um, very good week. Very entertaining. Can't say much about it right now, but definitely Ooh, it'll all kind of come very foreshadowing sausage you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure what a foreshadowing sausage is. Well, yeah, okay. But I imagine there's a gif, right? So, uh, but, like, I don't want to see that gif. No, I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. Wow. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> I didn't realize what I said before I said it. Uh, as always, we're not alone. Uh, we have a crowd of people who heard my embarrassing statement. And uh, first and foremost, we have a trio of CEOs. Uh, we have Anil Stocker, who is the CEO of Market Invoice. Anil, thank you for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, you had some big news recently. You did a little partnership. Yes. Yes, it was just a small one. No, um, we've been working on that for a long time. And to partner up with Barclays, a uh, 325-year-old institution, partnering with a fintech is uh, is really exciting. So um, Very welcome. Look at you partnering yeah. like a champ. Um, and Caroline Plum, uh, a regular now on Fintech Insider, CEO and founder of Fluidly. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Very nice to be back. Yeah, good. And you're slumming it after doing the Today program earlier today. Today. Well, to be honest, this is my highlight. I mean, those guys, you know, you guys are the real professionals. Aww. <laughs> it's because Aww. we gave you wine. <laughs> exactly. You don't get red wine on today. And last but not least, Tom Eyre, who's the CEO of Lockbox. How are you doing, Tom? Yeah, awesome. Great to be here. All right, let's start the show. Um, first story is Brits still don't trust banks in a giant surprise. Um, so this comes from Reuters, and there's some good numbers behind this one. So 10 years after the financial crisis, a YouGov survey of 2,250 UK adults says 66% do not trust banks to work in the best interests of society. And 72% say banks should have faced higher penalties at the time. Now, just for some context, banks have paid an estimated 251 billion pounds in public fines since 2008 so um it's not an insignificant amount and uh we spoke to the general public i think uh, we had uh, our, our intrepid media team going out to speak to a few people and uh, we got some sound bites let's throw to that not massively no i trust my bank yeah yes no yeah uh, yes i do no not really no because i don't know a lot about what they do but yes, because, well, they seem to. <laughs> I'd like to understand it more, but at the same time, I probably don't have time to. Uh, I've just always had good service from my bank. Yeah. That's, that's about it. Really. Um, I would say that, you know, there's there's laws in place, whereas if you, you know, the bank lost your money, it'd be covered. 
So for that reason, I would trust having the money in the bank to save place to have it. It's better than having it in like gold bullion under your bed sort of thing, which yeah. is the other alternative. Um, I'm sure individuals are lovely. I know some bankers, I'm sure they're all lovely, but as a, as a thing as a whole, I think they could do a lot more to help people and their money. I trust all banks in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. uh, I just feel like they have a lot of power. Um, I haven't personally had any bad experiences, but I'm always wary. Hidden fees, changing the interest rates and stuff like that all the time. Their customer services tend to be awful and not very helpful because you don't get anything back from it, having a bank account anymore, basically. It's, it's an evil necessity that you have to have. If I could hide all my cash under my uh, duvet and my bed, I would. Alrighty, that's what the great British public think. But what do our room think about this one? Did you, did you have any thoughts, Sarah? I always have thoughts. To me, this is phrased very badly as well. They're not saying that the British public don't trust banks. They're saying they don't trust them to work in the best interests of society. Those are two very, very different things. If you actually look at the statistics for whether people trust banks to handle their money and to look after their money for them properly, then they do. And that trust has been going up every year since 2008. The fact that they do not trust banks to work in the best interest of society, I am in no way surprised by that. <laughs> that in and of itself, I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, are they supposed... That My question there is actually is, are banks supposed to work in the best interest of society? Well, if you go back to the history of banking, I mean, you were talking um, about the 325-year-old institution. Um, Barclays, I believe, was founded, and a lot of the early banks were founded by Quakers. The core concept then was it was around community investment. They would take savings in order to invest back into society. That's that was the original intent of banking. Uh, if you need, if you had two communities separated by a river, they would pull their cash together as savings and then lend to a new enterprise the ability to buy a bridge, which would grow commerce and therefore um, bring it back in. It, we've gotten a long way from that. Um, so I, I think what it's come to be is something that's quite different and, uh, you know, sort of more Gordon Gecko and Flash Boys. Than- <laughs> I, think, I think it's a really interesting point, though, because essentially these are shareholded organizations who have a duty to be reasonably capitalistic bastards in terms of making money and that's fine like if we if we come to expect that in terms of what's there then like and, I, and I'm, that's not me being negative about it they are businesses so you know I, I think to your point Sarah I'm not sure we we should be expecting them to be charities I think that um, you know that that sort of single creation of a you know they are there for the good of the community type thing isn't really the banking infrastructure you know this isn't financial services that we live in now that's a very different sort of bank as well so there's you know if you look at people like the old-fashioned though i know the co-op is a very bad example of it but building societies are very much a case of like that was the purpose of a building society and a lot of them started in the north and in poorer communities where people needed to get together to get money to buy a house and that is a different kind of mentality and attitude and in fact business model to barclays or rbs or anybody like that I'd love to know whether actually even 10 years ago the British did trust banks to operate in the best interest of society or whether this statistic has always been the case. Yes. You know, it's framed as it's since the crisis, but has there ever been a time, you know, when was the last time that this actually was a positive sentiment? I bet it was ask, yeah, if you ask the British public, do they trust any major institution yeah. to act in the best interest of society, would I mean? Would they answer yes about Google? Would they answer yes yeah. about Amazon? I mean, legal yeah, I mean, it's a, really, it's a weird it's question to ask. And, yeah, and you know, it, it's also it's quite anarchic to suggest that they're operating against the best interest in society. If you'd worded that question the other way around, I imagine you would have got a completely different mm-hmm. answer. I doubt any. I doubt many people will go out there and say banks are actively trying to undermine 
society or the interest in society. That uh, Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, I just want to say that at Market Invoice, we've been thinking about this question quite a lot because we've just partnered up with a bank. And, um, you know, our, our instinct was always we want to be co-branded or we want our brand to lead because, um, you know, we've built a brand that helps the small business. Um, and I spend a lot of time talking to businesses. What do they think about the banks? Um, and I would say that it's not so necessarily a distrust, but it's sometimes an intimidation. So they think that if you're, let's, let's say you're a fashion entrepreneur and you go and you talk to Barclays, you're a bit afraid of that. You're afraid of going into the branch. You're afraid of being rejected. You're, you think it's a very intimidating thing. Um, but banks have a lot of trust, right? They still have that history of trust. So, so that in a way, if you could fuse the kind of fintech with the bank, you come with quite an interesting brand, right? Because, because some fintechs, if they're brand new, they might not be trustful. And Facebook, you might not trust them with your data, whereas you might trust a bank with your data. Yeah. So J- Jason always says that when they were doing the original research for around Monzo, it was the fact that people didn't trust banks, but they trusted them not to disappear. Yes, And, and, I, and exactly. I think the, the, you know, trust is, again, we're doing air quotes again on a, a podcast. <laughs> it never really works out that well, does it? But, but trust is such a broad spectrum of yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's, it's ethical trust versus practical trust so do i practically trust my bank to hold on to my money do i believe that my money is insured up to eighty-five thousand pounds i probably do do i trust them to always act in my best interests and make everything transparent and you know well not not act in my best interest but do i trust them to to you know give me a helping hand and go out of their way to be nice to me probably not it kind of depends what you want from your bank which exactly points to the, the whole point of monzo is that they, they have a different outlook i've I've said this a lot in the insurance space though and i think trust is i don't think the general public are generally that smart when it comes to who to trust and not to trust type thing (laughs) it it, it does appear that actually an element of outbound advertising and the use of tv content can essentially get you to trust pretty much anything if you've seen it on tv you know we saw this with the very early days of aggregators people were basically saying you would never trust a you know an aggregator to like put your data in and then buy insurance policies and like if anybody's you know on the around the table right now who says they did not get a meerkat at some point just, i didn't get a meerkat you lie I know, you I don't, lie no. did you just not fill in the form go compare <laughs> no, 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 no. so you've got a large welsh singer for our american <laughs> listeners we're talking about the commercials for some price comparison websites well, what i think is interesting about this is if you compare it to what's going on in the investment space esg or environmental social and governance investing is one of the big themes in the buy side right now sustainable investing is something that i think the the consumer generally is looking more and more for recycling is now has moved away from being something that was a, a kind of a, a fringe issue into something that's a mainstream issue and i think generally sustainability and on the second side of that you've also got like does this solve a fundamental set of problems for me the consumer because i trust the bank to not lose my money but i don't trust them to help them with my money or to help me understand or feel in control of my money and so if they're doing they're doing like half of the job that's the bit they're supposed to do and, and it doesn't surprise me people aren't giving them credit for stuff they're supposed to do like give them credit for stuff that they've done well and i think partnering is a part of that but i also think there's a lot more there that that probably needs to be done i think that trust is only one component as well of of your decision to purchase so you know it's very much attitudinal whether you trust something or not but actually what you actually your actual behavior could differ hugely and often does so just because you don't trust open banking or you don't trust an aggregator whatever it might be you still may participate yeah Um, totally and and like i say that's that's exactly what we saw in the insurance space it was like well you know Viva and like you know like Allianz are here but like you know 
Daisy Dave's kind of car insurance is like fifty pound <laughs> cheaper. So Daisy Dave's it is, you know. And people do this. Good old know? Daisy Dave. I know. <laughs> I think if you Trademark. take the nail on the head there, and kind of what we're dancing around a little bit here is price. Because if you want something to be to be social and ethical, and certainly with those investments, they are more expensive. It is more expensive to have a portfolio which is um, ESG driven. Yeah. ESG driven. And so, if we go back to talking about banks, well, yeah, okay, they could start doing things differently, and and they you know they they do have more money to spare. They could play with it a little bit more. But at the end of the day, if somebody said to you, okay, would you? Would you go to Monzo and take your savings there with zero interest because they're nice to you and they're transparent? Or do you keep your savings in an ISA that pays you whatever interest there is so out there? I think there? There's, there's different types of buyers though, right? Because I think there are people yeah. who buy that, which is your point. People will pay a premium for it. But I also think there's a cost side, not just price side. So I'm able to offer. So if my cost of operations is a large incumbent with uh, monolithic technology and monolithic processes that I haven't been able to really change for a couple of decades. Then you should buy a fintech like. Like, uh, then, you know, then, partner, you sh- so. then you should partner with a fintech and or you should look at other routes to execute like there are lots of new software vendors available who are fintechs and non-fintechs who do really interesting things around that space but um it is interesting on this reputational space listen we're up against it on time we've got a lot more to get through um but just a comment from our us team here sort of saying that there's um the, the view there from from our 11fs us team was that there's uh, maybe a small amount of lingering mistrust from uh, banks in the crash but it's actually things like wells fargo and and what happened there around the mis-selling that seems to be far bigger and so it's these scandals and these headlines that seem to that are more recent that seem to drive drive the narrative there can i, can I just say one thing is like trust is very rarely used at inanimate objects you know like actually trust, trust the pen trust in a company is reasonably irrelevant because the the company is made up by humans and it's actually about the trust in the humans which mainly kind of comes back to like leadership and the individuals that are working in them and i think there have been enough um, enough kind of scandals of whether it's the wells fargo one or you know what's happened with rbs and a kind of couple of instances type thing i think actually if you can believe in the leadership within those organizations and actually where they're taking it then actually i think people can regain trust really, really quickly. You know? So what does that mean to your balance sheet and business case? Because I do think transparency is something that we, when we talk to customers at 11FS, you know, when we, we do customer surveys and research, the big thing that comes back is that like feeling in control of your money and feeling like I've got good credit versus bad credit, feeling like I've got good savings versus bad savings, that morality of money is actually a really emotive issue for a lot of people. So uh, the transparency f- is good for your business is, is I think something that we need to talk so about. What the point I was making before is about the fact that the price the reason price comparison sites do so well is because of price and you can't take out that the importance of that decision so well that's my whole point we're talking about morality on one side but you're talking about the actual practicality of what needs to happen on the other and that's Caroline's point about everything goes boom in the middle what people say and what people do yeah but the the bigger the purchase you're making the more trust plays an issue so if you're spending twenty thousand pounds on a facility you're going to think very carefully about who you do business with. Whereas if it's a lower transaction, then you might be willing to take a risk. Yeah. Um, and what you find is people are being value-driven and values-driven. Uh, so that mixture is going to be really interesting to, to watch. And um, you know, kind of speaking of uh, reputational damage, uh, the next story comes to uh, good old TSB, story from the uh, Telegraph. God bless them, they're going through the walls at the moment. Uh, their online banking goes down again as customers complain after another outage. The outage only lasted half an hour but the social media backlash was strong uh, TSB are now recruiting 
recruiting hundreds of staff to tackle the backlog of complaints, which I think is a pretty decent sign, actually. Um, Dealing with complaints from all their issues today, almost doubling their customer service team. Um, And uh, they've drafted in uh, apparently IBM to repair their IT and uh, Deloitte to help recruit staff. Is their brand and reputation completely destroyed? I mean, they've got a net promoter score of plus 17. That compares against like Santander, who have minus 25. Like, it ha- yeah. It depends on when those their data was taken as well, I think. Sorry, Carol and I just both like raised our eyebrows at each other when IBM and Deloitte were mentioned. Back, back, um, back to the last story, right? People have very short memories on this stuff. You know, I, I think there's an interesting thing here about, um, you know, people probably sitting on a bit of a knife edge of everything that's happened and anything they knew that happens, people are going to really, really overreact on. Like being down for half an hour is really, really annoying, but actually like there's a bunch of, um, you know, information you can go and find out there to pretty much every bank has an outage type thing. I just think it's when you're at the end of your tethers to a certain degree, like a, a plus 17 MPS score pretty much most banks right now would kill for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kind of think the difficulty I, I kind of have with the, the TSB stuff to a certain degree is actually knowing those guys really well, they're really trying to kind of do the right thing. You know, not only in terms of actually the the ways in which they're going about uh, remediating in terms of the problems that they've actually had, but what they were actually setting out to do in the first place was was differentiated. You know, they were really pushing, whether it was Paul Pester or everybody in his management team, to actually create a bank that did it differently. And that's really annoying that this has happened, but I think they're doing everything they can to fix it. So that we, I mean, TSB is one of our big partners. We partnered with TSB uh, and announced that a week and a half before their migration, which is you know poor timing to say the least. But I mean that speaks exactly to David's point. They are they're trying to do it, and I, I think probably a more telling number is how many people have actually left the bank. You know what's their net loss of customers? Uh, so the the Q1 um, numbers, which probably don't have all of this in there, but showed a loss of um, five thousand, which was less than half of RBS and Santander's losses. But Q2 is going to be the big number to watch in the cash switching number. I mean, I think one of the really interesting and probably painful parts for TSB is that surely a lot of their strategy was predicated on moving to the new platform and therefore being able to move at speed. And and clearly, um, they were making a bid for the RBS Remedy Fund. You know, they were sorry, um, let's try and take 100 billion out of this. Now, I think they're probably their biggest threat to reputational damage is how the perception would be if the fund was then to award them a significant chunk of the money that they were probably sort of thinking they had a good shot in for for building out the commercial bank. So I think that's going to be, I think that will hurt hurt them more, much more than the actual churn from this. I think it's a really important point because uh, the the headlines are what get the attention of decision makers a lot of times. But to David's point and and to Tom's point, what's going on behind the scenes here is people trying to do the right thing. And I think uh, there's there's a vocal uh, crowd on social media that have not had the greatest experience. And frankly, there's been some rather challenging things in terms of people seeing money that they didn't have and fraud and those sorts of things you know, really should never happen but the intent was there i just wonder if there was something in the process that we can all learn from in terms of the big bang migration is there is there something there that we can all sort of take a lesson and go maybe that's not the right approach yeah maybe maybe you want to drip feed this how, stuff a how much bit. does it hurt do you think to say that we've had to have ibm come in and help here and so that was my point like to say like we tried to do it we tried to do it well and now not only do we have to admit defeat but we have to admit we need help getting back on our feet and and i don't think that's bad i think that if that's what they need to do to get it right then the that's what they need to do to get it right sorry no i think it, this ties to a previous point about how far is your brand driven exclusively by tech versus people right and i, I was talking to some 
some people know quite on the inside what happened at TSB and the people who held it together during this crisis was the relationship managers, the people on like the ground. So actually, you know, we should think about how you can empower people within financial services and how that affects your brand. It's not just about technology. I think people have a very big, uh, around that culture and around that brand. Yeah, it's driven by people. C- completely. They, they, you know, they are the safety net, right? You know, there's many occasion I've had a terrible experience with a brand that actually dealing with a human has actually made it made me into yeah. an advocate yeah. of yeah. it yes you know from airbnb to all sorts of different companies Airlines, exactly because when think when tech goes wrong but you can get through to a person that actually goes a long way to, to saving your brand. Well, talking about uh, net promoter scores, the bank that always has the best net promoter score is First Direct. And they have lovely, lovely, friendly, chatty people on the end of the phone. So, yeah, OK, maybe their app isn't the shiniest, but something goes wrong and you can get through to a really nice person who's like, I'm so sorry. So we just need Northerners you. as customers. <laughs> like, as a Yorkshireman, I'm, and I'm sure, Simon, you'll back me up on this I, one. I will back you up 100%. I think there's something about the competitive advantage of a human in the machine age. Like, this is a really critical piece. Like uh, it, everybody's talking about how many staff they're going to cut. It's mm-hmm. not how many staff you've got. It's how enabled are those staff to solve Absolutely. your customers' problems. How do you solve the, t- turn them into an asset? So rather than the banks thinking we've got to shut down branches and get rid of RMs, how do we turn that into an asset? In if only dig- we knew somebody who was on mainstream TV talking about this today. Mainstream you know? radio. Uh, right, you know, uh, yeah. oh, sorry. <laughs> You're saying we're not mainstream, David? <laughs> mm. We're pretty, but, we're pretty, we're pretty niche. Like we go weird sometimes. Well, I mean, the thing we talked about this morning on BBC was around how does AI start to affect finance, and you know, where are the big losses going to be, and where are the big gains going to be, and as a human, you know, where do you focus? And I think on adaptability, on skills, um, on empathy, on relationships. That's where you've got to over-index and let the machines do the processing around data and collation and do that at speed. Um, so, so-called undervalued soft skills. Like be empathetic, yes. have an ear, listen yes. and say, I'm so sorry. When did a machine last say, I'm sorry to you? But interesting, <laughs> on exam sorry, results Dave. day today in the UK, you know, thousands of teenagers are getting their you know, results and those are largely testing knowledge and they're not testing soft skills. And the question is, you know, really, what does what does it need in the future? And it's the number one thing employers always say that students don't have enough of is the soft skills. And I think it's a really important point. Um, I'm going to move us to the next uh, story. Uh, apparently, uh, funnily enough, uh, the British banks must describe those outages via an API decrees the finance watchdog. So the FCA's new rules mean banks have to publicly reveal the number and frequency of online outages. I'm curious as to what online outages means. This includes ones caused by, uh, air quotes, malicious actors. Um, banks will have to publish the information on their websites in a consistent format, according to the FCA, uh, while big banks will be expected to dish it up via an API compliant with the open banking standard specs. Um, four incident reporting metrics are currently in use. Total n- a number of incidents reported. Incidents affecting telephone banking. Incidents affecting mobile banking. Incidents affecting internet banking. Lovely idea. I can just see people gaming this, right? But but they already do it. Like, if you go to Lloyd's, it tells you which bits of its services are online and which bits are not online. So I find it a little bit strange. Like, if you go, there's two things. I, mean, I was talking to our producer, Laura, about this. And she's like, I can't find the word outage. She was looking for examples. And I was like, you don't need outage, you need down. And the first thing that comes up is down detector. And the second thing that comes up is like, Lloyd, is Lloyd's down, is Barclays down, is RBS down. So a lot of them, if you go to their websites, they already have a little bar at the bottom, a la Monzo or Starling. And, and I, you know, a, a lot of these guys do it. So it kind of feels like great. 
door stable horse bolt. Yeah, this just made me really laugh. What is this? Is, is this the solution to trust? Yes. This no. is it. I mean, come on, seriously. Did anybody see when Monzo had a real issue technically, and they had an issue with specific microservices, and they disclosed the full detail of what issue in what microservice caused what sequence of events to happen in their technology stack, how they investigated it, and then how they went about remediating it? That is a level of disclosure that would probably only make sense to less than 1% of the UK population. But actually... I can imagine Simon Van Cleaner writing that and being <laughs> like, glee. Yeah, but actually, that commitment to transparency is still something that meant something to the early adopter crowd, which then also brings with it uh, the, the sort of tech support crowd. But that, I think it actually comes down to transparency. So the neobanks, the, ch- the new banks, they're very transparent. We're going to be down for half an hour. This is what's going to happen. And this is how we're going to improve. Whereas I think with some of the legacy banks... You only find out about it when you can't use or can't draw down and they and get, tend to get the PR cash. it. They tend to like give you this front yes. and it's like, I know you're lying. I know that's PR. I, you're being disingenuous with me. You're, you're putting on a front. You're puffing out your chest and saying, everything is fine. Look how official I am. And it's like, no, it wasn't fine. Something clearly went wrong. But I mean, I, I think one of the questions here, and, and this reads back into the last story that we talked about. I mean, how much do consumers care? I mean, you, TSB had a catastrophic failure, and in Q1 they lost five thousand customers. I mean, I care when my banking app is down. I care in real time. I have erased that from my memory five minutes later. The I moment they're it, back I, up and running, I forgot. When AWS is down and Instagram doesn't work, or didn't work back in the day, uh, now it's in Facebook. It's a bit different. Or when Facebook is down, like that's the thing you notice. It's that real time stuff. Yeah, but to your, to your point you do for like five seconds and then you're like it's working again great yeah i'm good i don't think if you want to build a brand around transparency that's really laudable but for the fca to regulate it and say you know you have to publish this statistic and introduce a new whole layer of reporting and regulation i just think that surely there's better things to be doing i like the idea there's got to be something else we can be doing with all this time and money so the, the thing i like is that Maybe we can get agreement about some of these definitions, right? You know, we've seen this in um, other instances around active customers. You know, like <laughs> act. Uh, oh, I'm doing air quotes again. Yeah. Aren't I? I no, really... no, sorry, but you didn't even your tone of your voice gave us exactly what yeah, you needed. There. I know, yeah, I'm getting better at that. Um, so, but you know, having a, um, a consolidated view of what a malicious actor is, or a consolidated view of actually what an incident actually is, mm-hmm. I think will be a good thing because then we can actually get a, a probably a, a better yardstick on whose technology is like really screwed and the ones who are just like you know you've took down a system for 20 minutes because you need to do a thing and it's like 4 a.m in the morning and like you're okay with that you know um but but i so because at the moment like to my point around active users people use it's either somebody who's like vaguely used your product in the last 15 years or it's somebody who's used it in the last 15 minutes and uh, and i think the you know a yardstick for these things is probably not a bad shout i do think it's always whether it's down or up as an api what you care about is that you know the rate limit the response time you talk to anybody in the open banking space and look at the response times from some of the open banking apis and how you know long response times up to 30 seconds are you know causing huge issues with the customer journey so i'm not sure it's just about whether whether it exists or not but actually it's it's sort of the um the efficacy of that connection and really makes it you know viable and sorry i was gonna say it kind of goes back to that point we just made it's um, monzo will apologize and say we're so sorry we don't know what the problem is please bear with us we're going to sort it out lloyd's is like we're down we're investigating (laughs) <laughs> or, or you'd find out about it through Twitter. We went yeah. down. 
it's okay now. Everything okay. <laughs> Sorry, Tom, you're going to make a point. No, right. It kind of speaks to both what Caroline and Neil were saying, that this could be a carrot. I mean, I think it's an utterly wasteful use of the bank's time, honestly, regulating for this. And I mean, it's an excuse for, for, for additional regulation. But you could, if you used it as the carrot to define the better banks and the better brands, rather than a stick to beat them with when, when something goes wrong, that's, that's got to be the better way to treat this kind of What's data. What's interesting to me is that's, I think hit the nail on the head because they it's clear the regulator felt like they had to do this because the banks weren't doing it and because there was so much need for it and if that's happened they've probably done some looking into well why isn't this happening why am i not getting this information uh, banks seem to believe it's in their best interest to not tell you much about an incident that's happened until three months after it when actually all the customer research that we do says the exact opposite is true. The more you disclose, the more your customers trust you. It's interesting that they've decreed that it, this one is one that's sort of distributed via an API because all of this is going to have so much massaging around it that basically it's somebody uploading a spreadsheet, right? Yeah. Well, that's what it'll be right now. And I think, will somebody be uploading a spreadsheet and trying to then turn that into XML and fire that at an API? That's going to be interesting to watch. Or an Excel macro somewhere. Ugh. And who's going to call that API? Who is interested enough to integrate to that API to get all that data all is the time? Is it Down Detector? Down Detector right. will love it. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm just, you know, clearly have the wrong hobbies. Yeah. You know, do, you know, do you know who it's for? It's for the people who are consuming open banking services. So if I'm trying to consume an open banking service like Lockbox, for instance, if I'm trying to consume an API and trying to help my customers and I my service doesn't know if you're down or not, it could think that it's its own system that's broken. But if it can very quickly ping the bank and say, oh, you're the one that's down, right, okay, I'll just wait for you to be up and I'll manage my customer. So there's, there, there are services you can build in an open banking world that come as a but, result. But I think that's the thing, though, that in an automated world, okay. But actually, I think the, the, the vagaries around these definitions means that somebody's going to be like well you know it hasn't affected 10,000 people yet so it's not an incident it strikes me not a lot of strike engineers work in, in defining these definitions and if they did they'd long since pull their hair out and disappear because like the and a lot of this feels like a negotiated definition by banks who are like oh, I don't know if I can do that governor Ooh, that seems a bit tough that seems a bit harsh and th this constant watering down of well intended regulation is, is quite frustrating and I think if we're stack ranking the requirements for the open banking API um, can I just vote for like multi-user authentication, faster response times, and a nicer user flow before we get onto this sort of piece? Mm. You know. So if you're, if you're listening, all of the banks, then uh, there was quite uh, that was in interesting request. requirements there. There's some, some interesting stuff here in uh, the show notes prepared by uh, producer Laura. Shout out producer Laura. Um, that the um, FCA is also working on making banks disclose how they're prepared for cyber attacks. Um, and over the last three months, the UK's top five banks apparently had 64 for outages um, so this is pretty interesting um, but international outages of course Commonwealth Bank in Australia uh, went down literally this week as well whilst we're having a bit of a rout the last story comes from the Telegraph I think the mainstream news this week has just been like let's kick the banks again it's slow <laughs> news week um, why is trust down? Uh, revealed uh, the banks that robbed uh, savers of a rate rise apparently savers were hit by uh, 50 rate decreases the month before the Bank of England raised interest rates from 0.5% to 
1.75%, uh, the highest level since uh, 2009. Uh, 16 banks and building societies actually decreased saving rates in July uh, and early August ahead of the rate rise. Uh, uh, Sarah is physically shaking. I'm just she's, she's, she's gone quite red. Like, like come on, let it out. Like, oh, they knew it. It's so, this, this, I mean, if you're talking about like, why people don't trust banks, like, if you actually keep an eye on it, this is so disingenuous. Like, I won't say they did do it. I would say the perception is that they did it because they knew it was coming, right? They knocked it down so that they know they were going to have to bring it back up again and they only had to get back to the same rate. And Yay, it, it's, more profit. It's this kind of behaviour actually that is really upsetting. So not what message you display when you're out or like kind of, you know, not you know whether you paid enough fines or whether you said you were sorry. Actually like, okay, my savings just went down. And I know as somebody who, and there are enough people out there to know that their interest rate rise is coming, I can put two and two together. And even if they didn't do it, I've still got four. Like This is squarely in bad landlord territory. Jason always says, um, more like good waiters, less like bad landlords. This is bad landlord behavior. And actually, you've got to really think about the signal this sends out to the market and to customers in a world in which fintech has arrived, in a world in which more competition is coming internationally. It's, it's really becoming the case where can this really continue much longer? I think it can. Like again, I go. I go You're an optimist. I, know, I just, I just go back to the trust thing. Like, like people won't remember this in like three months' time. Like we're dealing with like Dory. You know, I mean, like this is not a. This isn't going to be a thing. I know for us who are in this industry and actually like we see all this stuff with reasonable sort of twenty twenty type thing. Like most people just don't, and it won't be a problem down the line, and it's okay. And but again, I come back to it, it's like, what do we, what do we want? Do you know what I mean? Like actually, and when do we want it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, in the in the situation where we want to be able to see that the you know the the shareholder value, you know, share price is being quoted for you know the returns that we're expecting to see from Lloyd's Banking Group and RBS in terms of the investment that the you know the general population of the UK have kind of made in that one through you know government intervention. So, like. Do we want them to be profitable or do we want them to be good? I don't think it's an all. I think like the golden triangle was always uh, shareholder value, customer satisfaction and profit. Like you you can deliver on those and and, being strong for society. You can do those things. It is possible to do all three of those. I don't think it's an all. I think it's a lot harder when you've got a lot of uh, legacy cost base that you don't know how to shift. That's a problem. But there are ways to solve that. I think that the perception thing, just to go back to like what the public think, whether they did it, uh, you know, intentionally or actively or not, they're very, very quick to raise your mortgage. They're never so quick to raise your interest rates. Now, again, whether that's right and whether they are linked or not, that's how people see it. So I would agree that people do forget these things. But if you do, for example, have a savings account and a mortgage with the same bank, it's not going to be difficult for you to be like. But they are, you know, they're silos of businesses within a bigger business. Do you know what I mean? We know that, but I'm just talking about the public perception of it. Do you know what I mean? That's the problem. It's it's not that whether it's right or wrong. It's not whether they're connected or not. It's like what I see as a member of the general public looking at it. See, personally, I, I think this flags a bigger problem of value of product so actually i think most of the people within big banking organizations are spending most of the time looking at profitability of backbook not in terms of actually what the service and the day-to-day experience of actually using that thing actually is so if, if organizations were spending more time creating value of owning the product rather than creating um 
value from the customers of them owning the product, mm-hmm. then actually you'd be in a situation where actually the it is a win-win. But it's not. That's not where people are. You know, we're talking about profitability of backbook from a credit card perspective. We're talking about profitability of a backbook from a mortgage perspective. And all of those things lead to squeezes rather than actually being in a situation where you're you're creating customer value rather than shareholder value. And that and that is a problem, no doubt. But I'm not sure it's one of the ones that I'd until somebody does something different, until there is actually an alternative that you can go well, these three people are doing you bad, but actually this guy won't, then I don't think there's any alternative, unfortunately. But, I mean, are, are we slightly to blame for this as consumers? I mean, well, we, us in the room. Like, no, I mean, us, specifically us. Uh, oh, no, damn no. it. As, as in everyone listening and everyone else on the street, you know, I mean, we've already, we've already heard today that we don't, we don't trust banks to operate the social goods. So we already expect this kind of behavior. We, we don't really leave banks where they don't do anything wrong. So, if, if a bank has no incentive to act f- for the social good, if it has no incentive to, to to care about what the public perception is when you're acting and doing things, I mean, why why wouldn't you? Who's to, who's to hold you accountable to that decision? Yeah, and I, I would say that on a more positive note, where we are right now and fintechs that are around, we can actually vote with our feet. We can actually move money. Like if you're unhappy with the rate of interest you're getting, there's lots of other avenues to transfer to different banks across countries, um, you know, take advantage of these platforms that are pooling different cash around different parts of the economy. So we can actually take a direct action here. We don't need to just sit there and, and suffer. But one of the challenges is the interest rate is itself so low that I think a lot of consumers uh, and also a lot of consumers are sitting on a depressingly low number of cash savings. So perhaps the most vo- vocal segments of consumers are sitting on relatively low amounts of cash at relatively low interest rates. So when it moves, they're not, they don't really shout about it. And it's those sort of segments of the market that do have large cash deposits that perhaps aren't as vocal in the media or on Twitter or wherever you hear it. And so it doesn't really um it doesn't create create the cycle of making people yeah. switch we so. spoke to dominic lindley who's director of policy for new city agenda uh and to get his take on this and summarize all of the stories we just covered so this is the first time for over nine years that the bank of england uh, interest rates have been over 0.5 percent but we know that banks will respond to this interest rate rise by increasing the rate they offer to new customers but they won't pass this interest rate rise on to their most loyal customers. For them, they'll probably leave them languishing in hundreds of different versions of uh, what I call zombie accounts. They're accounts which are no longer on sale, but they've kind of left their their existing customers in. And this is a continuation of a trend which goes all the way back to 2003. Banks have introduced really complex ranges of savings accounts and then left their most loyal customers in in the accounts paying really poor rates of interest. And these accounts can sometimes have very similar names. So for years, Halifax offered its new customers an ISA saver variable, which was paying good rate of interest. And then it left its loyal customers in something called the variable rate ISA saver, which was paying just 0.1%. So customers are losing out well on well over a billion pounds a year uh, by being left languishing in these, um, in these poorly paying savings accounts. And, you know, the key question is, could the kind of fintech companies help consumers capture some of that money? And we know that in data on instant access savings accounts is going to be available through APIs. But ISAs and fixed rate savings accounts won't be covered by open banking or, or PSD2. So, you know, consumers are still going to struggle to get their data on, um, on, on ISAs and fixed rate savings accounts out of the bank in a kind of secure way. And in general, you know, nothing's being done to force the banks to make this information available. 
And also the FCA, you know, the FCA has been looking into this for a while, kind of did a savings market study and sort of changed the information that consumers were sent about their savings accounts, which didn't really do very much. So they're currently consulting on um, on making banks pay a single rate of interest for all instant access accounts open for more than 12 months. So personally, I would favor a return to the kind of rules we had back in 2003, which is you know now over 15 years ago. And they required, you know, if a bank had a superseded account that has been replaced by an account paying a high rate of interest, they couldn't just leave customers languishing in that account. They had to move them into the better into the better paying account. Or you could introduce similar rules they have in the Netherlands, which say that banks must only offer a kind of limited range of accounts. And they can't just have loads of different accounts all the same paying different rates of interest. You know, people have never really trusted banks to act in their best interests. And the financial crisis just led to greater worries about whether their money would actually be safe. And now I think people have been you know, slightly reassured because the government has just been bailing out banks left, right and centre that their money is safe. But I still don't think they trust banks to act in their best interests. And the kind of constant drip, drip of scandals that's still emerging um, sort of after the financial crisis means that it'll take banks a long time to recover you know, their customers' trust. But it's stuff of you know, genuinely changing how they do business. And hopefully some of the new entrants um, will also increase the overall performance of the industry. I mean, the reason why banks like you know, some of the big banks, the big four, um, you know, don't help you understand how you spend your money, some money out of overdrafts and particularly unarranged overdrafts and catching you out when you exceed your overdraft limit. Whereas if some of the new sort of challenger banks have different business models, then the way they treat their customers will be different. But of course, all the challenger banks are at a very early stage and haven't really decided exactly how they're going to make money out of customers. I mean, this idea that your bank has a certain number of outages each month, but there's nothing, you know, there's no detail on what those outages were and whether they actually affected people. You know, far better would be to make the banks automatically pay compensation to consumers when consumers are affected by outages. You know, it's good the information is out there, but on its own, it's pretty meaningless to most people. All right, now we're done with the uh, bad news. Let's get on to some different news, at least. Um, Amazon is apparently considering becoming an insurance comparison site um, in the UK, says a report. Um, I don't know who this report's by, but uh, they're in talks with some of uh, Europe's largest insurers over the new site. Uh, It's not yet clear what products might be offered on Amazon's rumoured new venture, but this speculation alone apparently sent shares in GoCompare down 10%. Oh, no, not my (laughs) favourite. But don't worry, Money supermarket was down by 3.3%, uh, and uh, no word about some of the meerkat-driven price comparison <laughs> sites. So I think the meerkats are good, and again, if you're an American listener, look up meerkats and price comparison sites. You'll get it. There's there's something about simples and a wink. Um, it's all really good. You'll love this. I, yeah, I mean, I think I giggled because I thought you were going to say now for some good news, and I was like, hmm, depends which side of the fence you're on. But to me, it's, so when I when I do InsureTech Insider, the question we ask every episode is, what is the impact of price comparison sites and can you compete with them because 99.9% of people and that's not true it's pretty high statistic a lot of people in this country go and buy most of their kind of day-to-day insurance from comparison sites car insurance
insurance, uh, travel insurance, um, sort of uh, object insurance. A lot of that just comes from me. We, we're trained to it. And it's quite a peculiarly British thing, I found, that this isn't really a habit you see in much of Europe or America. They just don't have it. It's kind of we've, we've become used to it and partly possibly because of the, you know, those amazing advertising campaigns. <laughs> Honestly, but the fact is you could go out to speak to anybody between the ages of like probably like 18 and 60 and they'd know what you meant by meerkats. In terms of the business model, like why wouldn't they do it? I mean, they already kind of offer forms of insurance. It's very easy and obvious. Like if you're buying a, a, a big ticket item, you know, and you'll, uh, I mentioned, you mentioned earlier about like trust. Well, if you trust Amazon enough to buy your new television from them, then why wouldn't you trust them to provide you with the insurance in case it falls off the wall or your toddler runs into it or whatever else those TV adverts show? Yeah, absolutely. They are well positioned because they are known as a brand to put the customer at the center of everything. And and I think it makes total sense. And it's also a bit scary that just them planning to do something has an impact on the share price what happens when they actually roll it out um, and and I think that this is the big this is a great topic around Amazon the big tech companies just when they start to get their act together and think about finance what's that what impact is that going to have what's that going to look like the insurers are not going to mind either if Amazon says we'll distribute your insurance they're going to go woohoo of course yes please carry on I mean the, the interesting thing for me was that Amazon's known for tangibles right physical goods a physical marketplace so the kind of move to insurance all about intangibles suddenly and what next it's a logical jumping point when you start broking services is it going to be then financial services? Is it um, legal services? Is it business services? You could, you know, really extend it. Where's Amazon going with it? I think it's quite interesting. But uh, surely this is access to data, though. Like they've done this in a bunch of other industries. Like they are how I buy flights. You know, like it's just because it is. It like I want to go from here to here, and usually it's somewhere in the UK. But when it's somewhere random, then they are the best way to go and get flights. You know, it's I, 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 yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. No, yeah, this they, is they, Everybody they, on the table was like, ooh. They, 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 um, they're <laughs> very, you know, very, very effectively. But I, I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting one. Like, if they can get access to all of this data and do it in a really effective way, following in the steps of actually what Google have done in many, many other industries as well, then why would they not? It makes sense. So we spoke to the insurance correspondent at the FT, Oliver Ralph, to see what his thoughts were on the story. So there's been rumours for a long time that Amazon is interested in doing something in insurance. They, we know they've been hiring a lot of people, and it is becoming clear that what they're looking at at the moment is some sort of price comparison site. Uh, when news of this broke um, last week, shares in the two existing UK price comparison sites, uh, Money Supermarket and Go Compare, both fell fairly sharply on fears that Amazon would, would come in and take market share from them. And you can see why Amazon's a fantastic brand. People use it all the time. Why wouldn't people buy their insurance through Amazon rather than through Go Compare or Money Supermarket or Compare the Market or any of the others that are already out there? There is one thing to bear in mind, though. Others have tried this. Most notably, Google a few years ago set up its own price comparison site, Google Compare. That operated for about three or four years before Google closed it down. It had only managed to generate a fairly small market share. Google didn't really manage to make a, a big go of it. And you have to ask if Google couldn't make this kind of business work, will Amazon be able to do the same? I, I think one of the issues with Google is that they didn't market it heavily. One of the things that sets price comparison sites apart in this country, certainly, is that they all market very heavily using meerkats and opera singers and robots and whatever else it is they're using. Google didn't really do that with its price comparison site and didn't really win market share. So it'd be interesting to see if, if this is the route Amazon goes down, whether they do something with heavy marketing, as the other price comparison sites do, or whether they try to wind it into Amazon Prime or some of their other services and so avoid that heavy marketing spend. But then if they do that, 
can they win market share or will they run into the same problems that Google ran into um, a few years ago when they tried to do it? Still, it is quite worrying for the price comparison sites. Maybe not so worrying for the insurers that they, I guess, would still be selling insurance, whether it's through the existing sites or through Amazon. But uh, it might well change the balance of power between the insurers and the distributors. All right. Thank you very much to Oliver. Some good points about the advertising there and, and possibly shaking up the insurance model if it happens. Really, really good point. We need to keep that in mind. There's, a, there's another point here, um, which the consumer advocacy website this week revealed some research into price comparison website um, that uh, apparently entities related to car insurance were rife with errors. So six out of 10 policies had at least one detail on the price comparison off. Um, so apparently if you were going to have a courtesy call, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. Uh, is 60% sunroof... were wrong. Wow. I'm going to have to go and check my policies here. Goodness me, that's terrifying. Is this like the next mis-selling thing then? Or I think I think the the thing was basically there are four things that are like a big deal. So is your son is the sunroof included or not? Like if your car's car keys um, are stolen or not? Incorrect levels of a personal accident. Like they're kind of the biggies. <laughs> um, yep, those ones matter. Um, so it, it's interesting to like think about an organisation as big as Amazon stepping into a space where you've really got to get the details right on this stuff. It, what it will take is one bit of litigation for the floodgates to open. That's always the way with these things. And these problems can rumble on for years without bothering anybody. But if it does flip, then it can become the next PPI. So we've got to watch out for this. For sure. Alrighty, um, time for a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open packaged and upgradable harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives adopting the cloud to increase speed agility and scale using apis to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking it's time to reshape banking temenos with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by us, 11FS, I guess. Um, so we decided to give research reports the good old 11FS overhaul. Uh, Sarah, you just released your latest report. I'm not going to read this. Tell me what it is. <laughs> um, so it's up on 11FS Pulse. Um, this one is on best-in-class SMB financial services. Uh, oh, we need some of those. Oh, yeah. The um, Fluidly Woo-hoo! features. Uh, in fact, so does Caroline's voice. Uh, the joy of this is uh, we've reinvented the research report. It's um, divided up into very easy-to-navigate sections. There's an index. Like, if you only got five minutes, Let's go read the, the section you want. And if you're on the train and you can't read, then listen to somebody explaining the product. So they are absolutely designed for um, people who can need to consume this information but don't have the time or even the interest to read 74 pages of PDF report. Um, please head on over to 11fspulse.com, click research, have a look, read them through and let me know what you think. Please. I think they're seriously awesome. And I do work in the same company, so I am selling it a little bit. But you seem also, biased. I love I'm not sure. Like, I think it's seriously awesome as well. And I'm not in the least bit biased. You see that, obviously. You see that genuine maybe. endorsement from Caroline yeah, exactly. Plummer, yeah. OBE. <laughs> Featured in the report. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, let's get to the next story. Um, Revolut lockout. So com- story comes from the Times. Um, the uh, purveyors of metal cards themselves, um, Revolut, um, apparently there's been some customer fury um, at a lockout. So they've received a string of complaints in the past fortnight from users saying that their app suddenly prevented them from getting out their money without explaining why. Uh, Revolut has now asked blocked customers to submit payslips and P60 forms reflecting its concerns about money laundering. And we did cover a story before about they were looking at increasing their controls around money laundering. Um, I wonder if that's connected to them pushing for a banking license. Who knows? Anyway, the customers, uh, many of whom are on holiday and are using the app for foreign exchange, say they are innocent victims of Revolut's crackdown. And critics believe the problem was caused by deficiencies in KYC controls that Revolut had, meaning it was flagging the wrong users. Revolut, it's important to mention, denies this. Um, And uh, yeah, what do we think about this one? Uh, so I do think it's interesting. So um, a few, uh, probably weeks, possibly a month or so back, Revolut said that they had voluntarily gone to the FCA and said that they had a significant number of suspicious transactions that they were dealing with. At the time, we said that that's unusual. Like generally, you don't self-report to the FCA, like, and everybody around the table is agreeing with me, unless there's something seriously gone wrong. So um, they did self-report, but that in and of itself is unusual. The other thing to point out is that Revolut have been very bullish that they do not need traditional compliance. They've got, they say... Um, and you can go and find the blog on this um, sort of a, a machine learning driven uh, a fraud center, basically for, for the layperson. And I think what is um, is, is sort of to, to me what feels obvious that I'd be happy to, to be proven wrong if, if somebody can prove otherwise that they have gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. So they probably were slightly more lax than they should have been to start with. Now they've realised they've had to tighten up because the FCA is looking at them because they self-reported and they've accidentally gone too far. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing to me though is um, I, I do buy that and I understand. And it's very difficult when you're trying to handle larger numbers of customers and you're trying to handle all these different kinds of um, identity documents and things. Why would a P60 be relevant? I mean, there was one gentleman who's on holiday and said that he submitted his photograph, his driving license, payslips and bank statements. God, he's had all those on holiday with him. But it says that he asked for his most recent tax return, which he wasn't didn't have with him. But I don't understand, uh, you know, for, for those of you guys who actually, actually deal with like KYC and ML, why all of that? Is now relevant. I don't. That's uh, your it, statement of income, though, isn't it? The last six months, twelve months, yeah. 60, so you, can, I guess, it's a good source from that perspective. But, 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 but like, sorry, there's something like sublime to ridiculous. So we're going to take a very light approach. So we're going to like get your yeah. P sixty. But is this a bit I harsh? Know. You know that interpretation because you know the we talked about transparency before and how important that is. So actually, if you're going to be transparent. And then we can't really blame them for self-reporting. That seems like in the interests of transparency, in the agree. interests yeah. of, you know, good behaviour in the I, circumstances. I just feel like the transparency isn't enough because I don't understand why Revolut wouldn't want my P60, but Monzo never has. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. So the, I wonder how much of this comes from, again, that rapid push for growth, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's very easy to grow customers if you make the KYC and the customer due diligence up front super easy. However, that can build up a bit of a problem. That can then build up a bit of a, oh, crap, we're seeing some money laundering. We've got to manage that. Now, good on them. I, I think they deserve a lot of credit for going back and going, ah, we were young once. Now we've grown up and we've realized uh, that, oh, my goodness, there's this huge problem. And we're going to self-report on that and we're going to try and deal with it. Credit to them for that. I think the inevitable fallout of that has been some horrible customer experience. But you have to be pretty brave as a company to probably know that you're going to get into these problems and do it anyway like you've got to think there's some of the driving motivation there but to your point this hasn't happened with other challenges so maybe it will happen yet 
Yes, exactly. Maybe it will. But but there there are actually no challenges at this scale, are they? Like yeah, the you know, Rev- Revolut have reported a million customers, right? So the you know the bigger you are, you know, we've seen this with people like HSBC. Like you know the. Yeah, so the the bigger you are, the bigger you tar- the target you are. And they're for more international like as well. And- so because they have customers in more countries, money laundering cross border is much more likely than it is in country. No, look, I read this story and for me it was a bit of a nothing story because Mm -hmm. everyone has to look at KYC in more detail, not just Revolut. Revolut, As you said, Revolut has grown phenomenally fast and added so many users and is inactive in so many different geographies. So they've had to do it like right now but you know on transferwise they start they also ask more questions when when you start to sign up to them and use them and you know this story was really strange because it doesn't it just says customers or it was saying like dozens of and if you think of it it's like dozen dozens of customers out of a base of 2.5 million is this really a problem and and where is this story coming from it's for, for me it felt a little bit contrived but it's, yeah. but it's it's interesting though because i guess a, a company that's born into a digital age you know, Revolut are so heavy into social media with everything, like not not just the Zlatan stuff, although the Zlatan stuff was amazing if you're listening, Revolut. Um, but like the fact that they have been sort of born into that. I wonder how many people who, who are Revolut customers are now Revolut customers because it's, you know, one of the best things that you can do when you're traveling abroad. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's like fintech crew it means it's like people who are savvy to what good products are that like you know the bizarre case of this man seemingly having pretty much every personal document that he could possibly have traveling you know like that guy might not be target demographic for for fintech but he might be target demographic for being super savvy when it comes to actually being a, a human being you know? I, I think talking about the human sorry that on the human being point it was worth pointing out that revolut the problem again it's like the straw that broke the camel back we were talking about earlier revolut has had problems with compliance and in fact hasn't managed to hold on to a head of compliance it's on this they're looking for their third one in 18 months and it's kind of that thing yeah okay this probably is a non-story or it could be a non-story but it is very much again and this just to me shows it's not just the big guys who've reputation problems the small guys have it as well so if this had happened to any of the others i don't know starling or pocket or any like that people probably would have gone okay well that's an accident but because revolut has this kind of history recent history of, of a few problems it, it kind of builds up uh, revolut were known of one of the one of the ways one of the easiest ways before they announced their ability to uh, allow you to buy cryptocurrency in the app people were using revolut to move money abroad to buy cryptocurrency either in the us or some other exchange so it was an easy way to be able to do that and there's a real push coming from uh, the financial action task force fatf at the moment around virtual currencies they'll be meeting in china on the 4th and 5th of september to discuss exactly the set of policy issues and it's the biggest concern around crypto is is this being used for money laundering they're actually seeing um, a, a great deal of specifically avoidance of con- currency controls especially around some of the recent sanctions that have been put in place so there's a political dimension to this that's important and i think uh revolut are in a in a tough spot here and uh i really hope they can pull themselves out of it because they they do offer a great service i mean if you talk to people who travel abroad and use this travel card consistently it's rated one of the best ways to do what they do so i'm a revolut customer and have been for some time it's but it's one of those brands that i don't particularly feel affinity to but the product is really awesome so i think it's it's, it's a balance between back to the transparency trust issues you know you know but they are moving on so fast it's not surprising that they've had some of these issues and i think 
what I noticed recently was that they you had a certain limit and after that you were asked to verify your documents. So it may just be that a whole bunch of people are hitting a currency that transfer limit. limit on holiday. On holiday Maybe it's the euro away. versus the pound. Maybe it's the fact the pound's so weak. <laughs> Sorry, Caroline. <laughs> Indeed. All right, I'm going to move us to the next story. This one comes from uh, CNBC. Uh, JP Morgan are going to unveil a new investing app with an eye-catching disruptive price. Anyone guess what it is? Free 99. Free. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, JP Morgan's new digital brokerage service comes with free trades, portfolio building tool, and access to equity research, which is pretty interesting. Um, it starts next week, and it's going to be available apparently to all 47 million of its mobile or online users. All customers get 100 free stock or ETF trades in the first year. Those with Chase Private Client get unlimited trades. It's called Uinvest, and the bank will add robo-advisor functionality in January next year. Um, the CEO, Jamie Dimon, had hinted at this move in 2016, citing Amazon Prime as his inspiration. Look at this. A bank probably, what, learning to do Robert and Hood or moving to a subscription model? I think this is really interesting. I think it's interesting, but not surprising. Sorry, David. Yeah. No, it was like Amazon Prime isn't free. So what's uh, the free in this? Well, free tra- trading. No, no transaction fees. You don't oh, have no okay. transaction so fee. So I pay a fee, but actually then I don't pay fees on the individual transactions that's I imagine place. there's a subscription fee underneath. Uh, you can use it as much as you want and okay. you're not going to get I'm sure they've fees. done the kind of modeling around that to make sure that it's way more profitable than doing it the other way anyway. So, well, so how many trades do you do per year in, in a stockbroker account versus how many would you do if it was quote unquote free and bundled in with a subscription? And a lot of subscriptions are actually based on the fact that I sign up, forget that I've signed up and then keep recurring and forget that I'm using the service. Yeah, but the service feels like it's giving me lots of value, which as you read that out, like if I was a power user, if I was somebody who really knew what I was doing in the trading space, this is actually a great deal. But that's going to be a small percentage of their 47 million customers. This, sa- this sounds like the all-you-can-eat buffet where you can only eat as much as your stomach will allow you. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, you're in, you're in this situation here where you're like, yeah, you can like, you know, you can do like share trading as much as you want to. But like, you've only got so much capital. Therefore, you're only going to be trading so many shares, right? And I think it's also about, um, so it's, to me, it's about time as well. So you've only got so much time to be focused on trading. And so the, the thing to me that Robinhood really tapped into is uh, they, the reason they started in the US is because people over there are more in tune with the idea of self-directed investing anyway. So they're kind of more on board with the idea that I go and play with my portfolio, which is not something I think people in Europe, the average person, and JP Morgan are going after the millennials. Who even knows what a millennial is anymore? You're um, one, Sarah, aren't you? Sure. I don't know. Like, I've, I've never, the definition keeps shifting. Um, not in line with my age, unfortunately. Um, but uh, the point <laughs> the, the point being, you've only got so much time to do it. So what they're trying to do is like maybe draw people in a little bit with the free trading and a la Robin Hood, you do a little bit on a weekend of an evening and you go, oh, okay, what's happening over there? I'll buy some, and invariably in Robin Hood, it's like, I'll buy some Apple, I'll buy some Google, I'll buy some Microsoft. And then what they actually want you to do is put your savings into the robo invest which they hold under their their, you know their big asset management and they can manage that for you i think this is kind of like a little tiny breadcrumb trail to get you in and give you your assets now 
And then in 10 years' time, as your assets grow, you'll put more assets in. It's the gateway drug, and uh, we like those. Um, but I think it's... Uh, <laughs> I was going for a, a more fairy tale version. But yeah, but but it's you know, they're not the first to do this. Um, Revolut have launched the ability to do it as well. We've seen free trade in the UK. Uh, there's Dabble. There's more and more popping up with this model. I think we'll probably see a lot more of this. And if you're sitting inside a bank and you don't have a plan to do this, you should probably steal with pride here and do a me too. The other piece is, do you remember a statement by Jamie Dimon about a year ago where he was on CNBC and he said, look, fintech is going to be a thing. We've got to become like a tech company. I can really see this is actually like he's delivering on that promise. This isn't just like, you know, they've done Finn, which is a proper attempt to do an entirely new millennial focused brand. They've done this now. Like they're, they're changing how their business model works. And you very rarely see that. A lot of what you see is here's a shiny new bit of graphic on our main thing. Or we've partnered. No offense, Anil. Um, but, <laughs> but it's not. Ouch. But, it, but, but it's not because it's not something they do internally. Right. It's, it's they have to rely on the external innovator to bring the innovation back. Yeah, they haven't been good at building. There's not that many examples of them building. IMG Yalt, maybe? The, the That's irony, a good example. But the irony of the, the, the Finn being called Finn with FinTech has clearly been lost on me until exactly this point. Right. Did that occur to anybody else? <laughs> like somebody in some boardroom said, we need to do FinTech, and they did half of it. And, well, they added an N, <laughs> so maybe it's for dolphins. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but so, so how much... Um, sure. So Jamie Dimon has been a main sort of protagonist in the whole sort of anti-crypto space for quite a significant amount of time type thing. And actually, we've seen a lot of people um, not wanting, you know, millennials kind of going into the the crypto space as a, a fast way to sort of make more significant returns than the stock market is this actually jp morgan's approach to kind of rebalance that a little bit and actually make stock market investments a more attractive thing to the youth market i think there's something for that second pick because i don't think they intend to do anything around crypto for the consumer front end but quite possibly i think and, and if you look at what Robinhood did they used crypto to drive a lot of their customer acquisition but actually it's you come for the crypto you stay for the great savings um this is will they do something like this i don't know but they've got 47 million customers to push at it's interesting yeah i mean they've they done um where jp morgan have done very very well is with their kind of rewards cards and things like that that's what historically they've used to bring people in so the sapphire rewards card by chase um is is one of you know the most popular products in the u.s but millennials if you like are finding there are other things out there now as well they don't just have to have a credit card that gives them points back or cash back or whatever you know maybe investing has its own reward and maybe there's talking about you know different kinds of reward going back to the conversation we were having earlier it's not just financial there's a gratification piece as well so maybe you do spend 40 minutes on a friday evening managing your portfolio but how good do you feel when you've done it that kind of emotive thing and 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 chase is really tapping into that with finn so some of the um money management tools that they have there you you respond with emotions so I bought a, frapp- a full fat frappuccino with whipped cream at Starbucks. Sad face. I bought a gym membership. Happy face. And that's how you track your spending. You kind of put emojis by it. And Is I that wondered- you, Sarah? You did these things? Uh, no, I do neither of those things. <laughs> I'm neutral face. I bought, I bought Just, red you know. wine, smiley face. Yeah, that would be fair. That <laughs> would be fair. But, but that's a really interesting point. The amount of people have always tried to treat money as this very serious, impersonal, unemotional, mm-hmm. clinical thing. And the reality is precisely the opposite. And it's interesting to see brands and big institutions finally tapping into that with really interesting user experiences. Um, speaking of which, we need to move to the next story. Um, so UK 
fintech funding story. God, that's hard to say. Um, finance funding fintech. Um, it's, com- it's all the Fs, but not the one that we usually use. Yeah. So that's good. So. <laughs> fintech. Um, so coming from the FT, um, Monzo is poised to join the ranks of Europe's fintech unicorns. So apparently they've uh, raised a fresh round, uh, valuing the company at $1.5 billion and more than quadruple the value they had in November of 2017 at the last funding round. They're aiming to raise $150 million um, and they've got Axel Partners who are proper um, Silicon Valley VC involved um, and expected to be announced before the end of the year. Uh, Tom Blomfeld has declined to comment on the funding itself um, but it's unsurprising given the timing and given the uh, fundraising. Any thoughts on this one? So for, for, well, um, well I'd, I'd like to, you know, the fintechs in the room probably should get the say on this. What other question I'd like to add to your question, Simon, is, and this goes back to what you were talking about last week, David, is that this is American money coming into British fintechs. So is that interesting? In, do you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, them becoming a unicorn is one story, but... Um, but London is the sort of fintech capital of the world by investment still. Like in terms of total amount invested in fintechs, I think it was surpassed a billion last year. I mean, really, it's a real powerhouse in terms of financial services. So no surprising that, that American money is coming into the UK and, and, and good on it. Americans are very good at VC as well. I mean, like the West Coast VCs are just really, really good at this, especially this late stage follow on funding. Yeah. Like we in, in London, especially, we built a really good early stage VC capability. But that follow on, that growth funding, had always sort of been missing um, and this is this is a sign that you do have to still look to the west coast once you want to go to a certain level of scale or you've got, got, got your bank capital ventures you've got best partners you know you've got um like a whole range thrive capital like a lot of you new york based vcs mm. as well also looking I, I think a lot of those guys look for intent though don't they i think that's the interesting thing like we've had tom come out and say um you know they want a, a billion customers they're not going to do that here you know, at what point do you start going, um, you know, unless the sort of immigration policy really sort of foils and we like we really sort of change up in terms of what we're doing? And maybe that'd be a sign of Brexit. I don't know, really. I know nothing anymore. Um, but in terms of actually like the the ability for those guys to go and get that amount of customers, it has to be looking at investment from a strategic perspective in terms of actually where they're going to be going next. So the US is a huge uh, demographic in terms of actually where they can go, there's hundreds of millions of people that actually they can kind of run at. There's a market that actually is, um, you know, reasonably embryonic from a, a fintech perspective. Did it again. That's at least the fifth time I've done air You've quotes. Got to stop air quoting, man. I know, I'm bad. Um, so, so I, I kind of think it's, um, at what point has Tom moved to, I need money to build the company to, I need, money to sort of actually build the you know the future of the company in it's terms scaling of the business isn't it yeah that's absolutely critical there's a really interesting article i saw on I think forbes as well an interview about specifically how he's thinking about scaling the business and seven steps to scaling a business which i, I, I thought was a really interesting article and typical tom actually really insightful yeah, yeah i just wanted to, you know i wanted to add that it's a huge success and and a great they're a great poster child for fintech in the UK. Uh, you don't get that kind of valuation without doing something really right. And I think their brand and their customer base, they found a segment of the market that it really resonates. Uh, and, so, and they're delivering numbers, and, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're talking about 900,000 customers. They're on track for a million by September. That puts them in the top 20 UK high street banks. Yeah, and it's only it's only good news for British fintech, and it's only good news as far as I'm concerned for those challenger banks who I don't really, you know, I only bank with one of them. I don't bank with all of them, but I don't really care. Like as long as they all keep going and they all provide different options, great. <laughs> the more the more of it, the better. And the more things I have to write about because if people keep consolidating and merging, I'm going to run out of stories, guys. So how long can they though? 
because there's only so many customers to go along. Like the, the you know the UK is a small place, and actually we've seen so many different challenger banks coming along. You know we're really seeing the big banks responding to that. Like surely this growth can't be sustained. How many bank accounts do you have, and how many do you use? Because I have, I will, I'll take, I have four bank accounts that I use on a regular basis for different things. So I am actually counted as an active customer at four separate banks. Well, and I, and I think so that's I the thing. I wonder if that's, I, and I actually, I've spoken to, certainly Atom, I know have this strategy. They don't want to be your only, well, they wouldn't, would they, because they're not current account, but they don't want to be your only bank. They want to be one of your banks. And I wonder if actually, maybe that's the strategy. So I, I completely agree with that. I think being your second account is interesting, but it's like trying to be like your second boyfriend. Do you know what I mean? Like you've got to be very realistic about what your expectations about that relationship actually are. <laughs> sorry, um, but I mean like, sorry, to, to, to clarify, I mean that like I use one account for this specific set of spending. So that gives that bank my data about how much I have on discretionary spending. This bank I use for um, my household spending. So they know how much I spend on bills. This bank I use on X. That was on, uh, actually, I was going to come back to David's point about about active users and and actually... There's no doubt that, I mean, this is a huge success story. I mean, I echo that absolutely perfectly. But how many people use Monzo as their only account? How many people how use... How many people have gone full Monzo? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And perhaps bought the T-shirt <laughs> as well. You know, who's who's done that? But when the VC money runs out, where does the value lie? Does the value for a bank lie in you having four different bank accounts that you use each bank for a different thing or is there a reason that traditional banks try and capture you and hold on to you as, as sticky as possible can, can because that that's where the value though, lies I, I think the challenge in 2016 was oh it's just a prepaid card and an app we could do that in 2017 it'll be different when they try and flip them from the prepaid card to the bank uh, in 2018 it's uh, will anybody ever make them their full current account and what does that really mean so I think the challenge is moving and actually that's a good sign that the challenge is moving and you know, that's happening for other people I mean it's happening for yourself at market in voice it was like this was a nice niche and now actually you guys are growing and you've got a major partnership with a major bank and you guys got some funding out of the deal as well um tide got some funding and uh you know they've got the former credit tech chief operating officer oliver prill coming on board as ceo um so there's there's a lot happening in this fintech space where i think it's maturing and it's not going to be every one of the challenger banks that does that but i think there will probably be a few that survive and maybe and, and the interesting question is are they just another one on the in the landscape or do they do something materially different to that landscape which is i think what david was driving at but we got to get to our own finally story um Coming from Gartner.com, um, their hype cycle had uh, five new trends emerging in 2018. Um, and uh, David, you and I were just looking at this one this morning. Um, could you just explain, well, you used to work at Gartner. What is a hype cycle? Um, so a hype cycle is basically a, an ability to look at all of the different things that are happening from a technological perspective or on a plethora of different uh, slices of industries and kind of look at how effective it's actually being in the market right now. So being in a position where actually you can look at um, different technologies, you can understand actually whether you should be investing in them or whether you should actually be avoiding them until they reach a, a level of maturity where they're actually you've got through 
and I never used to use this when I was at Gartner, but through all the level of bullshit that you kind of get to, to, you know, get through that innovation department and being in a situation where it's actually being any fucking use of people in any way, shape or form. Um, so actually being at that point, then actually going through that uh, trough of disillusionment actually means that now it's actually being practical. You know, you're in that point of actually going, it's beyond the hype. It's beyond the point where actually people are just investing in it for the sake of investing in it. Um, and getting to that point where actually now you're delivering delivering real benefit not only to the customers that you serve as an organization but actually to the ones that your organization as a as a whole does that make sense it does why is there nothing in the slope of enlightenment it takes a lot of time right <laughs> who's really enlightened enlightenment is a journey that you'll never really end <laughs> i have to say that the one thing i've always loved about these garden hype cycles is the is the, the stages you're at the innovation trigger the peak of inflated expectations the trough of disillusionment, the slope of enlightenment, and then the plateau of productivity. <laughs> That's where you want to be, right? Yeah. You know, right on that plateau. And there's nobody there. But little people dream of that when they're small. <laughs> I, you know. I, I, like, never has productivity and plateau been used in the same sentence <laughs> and been, uh, been so disheartening. Can you write to them, please? And have Indeed. Um, also, what's 4D printing? So I'll, I'll be honest, we, me and Simon talked about this one earlier on, like about 7am on the sofa this morning, and he talked about 4D printing and my brain exploded, because I was like, is it a smell? Is the like, fourth dimension, what, the fourth dimension the... is time. Surely the fourth dimension is time. So Simon, exactly, Simon, like, so explain, Simon, because you, so you actually went and looked this they, up. They, they print a polymer that has the ability to move, uh, so after it's printed, it can, uh, so it would either be water or it would be electricity. Something activates it so that over time it will form a structure. So you might print something out that's two-dimensional and you put water on it and it becomes three-dimensional or you put an electricity current through it and it becomes three-dimensional over time. So it is actually using the fourth dimension. My brain went through like plants and Frankenstein's monster there. Yeah, that like oh, this why, is why, what my why, brain why did at seven a.m. Why do we need morning. that? What's it going to be? Why don't we need that? <laughs> why don't we need Frankenstein's monster? That book does not do? end well. What about the right. autonomous driving Let's, level four? <laughs> Uh, let's uh, let's uh, wrap up this week's news show. Thanks everyone for being on the show. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Anil? Oh, we can go to our website, um, marketinvoice.com or our blog, um, or you can come visit us in Shoreditch as oh, well. Oh, wow. Come yeah. hang out. And, yeah. and if you're not in the wow. UK, get a plane. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> We've got to be careful with those invo- yeah. Like, yeah. invites. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be just like people hanging outside your office. It's going to be weird. Yeah. So, I thought right. you were going to say, you've got to be careful with all those invoices. I'm like, it's what he does. <laughs> like, it's very true. Yeah, this is starting to feel like an advert. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, we have a beautiful roof terrace, so you can come check it out. Wow. Caroline, plug fluidly, please. Plug fluidly yeah automagical cash flow forecasting powered by artificial intelligence one of wired's top 100 hottest european startups there we go Ooh. i feel oh, like we've balanced that it was a, a good bit. plug right that was that was yeah and it was such a soundbite skillfully done it's but like I'm you've done at, that before at c plum and at fluidly brilliant uh, tom how about your good self uh come and check us out at lockbox.co.uk don't come and visit without an invitation too <laughs> far too british for that uh but yeah, we help everybody build a credit history. And crucially, it's L-O-Q-B-O-X. L-O-Q-B-O-X. And yeah. building credit histories. So there's Credit Karma who, who are out there with the rent stuff, yeah. and you guys are doing it in a slightly different way. Yeah, absolutely. So we allow people to use their savings to build a credit history. So if you're young, new to the country, expat, and you can save a little bit of money every single month, we can help you to use that to build all three of your credit histories. Here, here. Um, I hope for more good services like that. Um, all right, David, how about you good self? Um, nice and easy this week uh, at David Breer on Twitter but the new season of PUBG's out 
Okay, so at David Breer on PUBG. <laughs> Sarah. Uh, well, you can find aforementioned reports featuring aforementioned Caroline uh, at 11fspulse.com. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Koshansky. I'm at SY Taylor on Twitter and you can join the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com or tweeters at fintechinsiders and please subscribe if you're just clicking download to the odd show you're wasting your time this show could be there for you on your phone waiting for you ready to press play like that- really what are you doing like yeah. if you haven't subscribed at this point like we can't be friends I, I, I'd still hug you and then I'd push subscribe for you on your phone because I'm <laughs> weird like that uh, thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now <laughs>